Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. And I'm Sarah Schaefer. And today we're going to be discussing the artist Ai Weiwei, who has been in the news a lot recently. Uh, He had a major show called Ai Weiwei According to What that recently closed at the Brooklyn Museum uh, here in New York City, but has been making the rounds. It was in the um, Hirshhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., and the Perez Art Museum in Miami, as well as elsewhere. So we thought now it might be a good time to, to talk about this artist who's quite um, controversial, but also very much well respected in the art world. So one thing to note as we get started is just uh, in terms of his name. So I is actually his family name and Weiwei is his first name. So we'll probably just be referring to him as Ai Weiwei by his full name throughout the podcast. So one of the things that makes Ai Weiwei so remarkable Um, among the pantheon of major blue chip, uh, in other words, very successful contemporary artists, is the fact that he is as much a political activist as he is an artist, and that the strains of his activism and his art are really intertwined. In 2011, he uh, was disappeared by the Chinese government for three months, ostensibly for tax evasion. And most people consider um, the actions of the Chinese government to actually be a response to his years of activism leading up uh, to that time. And because of all the ensuing publicity, the fact that he was gone for almost three months and and nobody knew where he was, uh, he became a really, really known entity, not only in the art world, but also in the international press. So in that same year, uh, 2011, he was named both the most powerful person in the art world by Art Review Magazine and also one of four runners-up for Time Magazine's People of the Year or Person of the Year. Uh, and then the following year in 2012, he uh, was received the uh, Vaclav Havel Prize for Creative Descent from the Human Rights Foundation. And also in 2012, uh, a documentary was released about him called Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry. And that documentary won the special jury prize at Sundance. And by the way, that documentary, uh, at least as of today's recording date, is available on Netflix. You can stream it at any time. So if you're curious about Ai Weiwei and want to learn more about him, especially about his activism, we recommend that documentary. What we're going to try to do today is to talk uh, a little bit more about his art, Um, but that gives you a lot of the backstory of his relationship with the Chinese authorities and his abuse by police. Um, He was physically assaulted in 2009, and that's a big part of the story leading up to where he is today. While the political actions that um, Ai Weiwei has become famous for are really important, and I have a background in human rights work and Um, They're important to me personally. What he's doing, I think, is really critical. Um, What we want to talk about today is his art. And that's something that sometimes gets a little bit lost uh, in the discussions of Ai Weiwei that you find in the press. Uh, In doing research for this episode, I was a little frustrated because you would go to the websites of museums that have exhibited his work, and they would tell you more about the political circumstances of the work than, than discuss what the work actually looked like or what its meaning was. So today we want to try to rectify that a little bit. It was in 2008 that Ai Weiwei first came to a kind of international prominence, and that was 
because of um, him being invited to participate in the design of the bird's nest, which was the major stadium of the Beijing Olympics. Uh, he collaborated with the noted Swiss architectural firm of Herzog and de Meuron, which actually designs a lot of museums at this point. The design itself was celebrated, but then he became even more notorious after the bird's nest was built for coming out and criticizing the Chinese government as the Olympics were starting um, and speaking out against the way that the government had displaced thousands of local residents, had just sort of done a slum clearance program in order to build uh, the Olympic facilities. And then the government turned around and basically asked these same displaced residents to, you know, smile for the camera and make nice. That was sort of the one of the first major moments where Ai Weiwei's art uh, came up against his political activism. The activism that Ai Weiwei participated in in 2008 uh, was really the product of uh, uh, many decades of being exposed to uh, political sort of radical leftist ideas. So uh, when he was a kid, he was actually um, exiled along with the rest of his family uh, to a remote province. Uh, his father was a prominent poet who crossed the party and was sentenced to a labor camp. And so that was a formative part of his childhood experience. Uh, the, the second sort of formative period of his life was in the 1990s when he uh, moved to New York City and lived in the downtown area and hung out with downtown artists and participated in what was then a very gritty uh, downtown art scene. So uh, it was in this period when he was in New York where he was exposed to the ideas of the avant-garde about the collapse between art and everyday life, which is a very different kind of politics, I think, than that um, which was associated with his father. Uh, he was particularly influenced by the artist Marcel Duchamp, uh, his works, uh, being able to see them, you know, Duchamp uh, had uh, passed away by then, but his uh, legacy was still very much felt in New York, partly through Jasper Johns, uh, neo-avant-garde artist of the 1950s, who is still very much around and still is. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can see this um, particularly in uh, Ai Weiwei's predilection for puns, uh, lots of puns in the 90s. Um, and that's something that comes straight from Mar Marcel Duchamp, the, the, the extreme interest in language and how language relates to visual experience. So the term ready-made was something that Duchamp actually invented, and it refers to an object that he took from the world and then simply placed, typically without any alteration, inside the context of an art gallery or an exhibition or a museum. And so it's called a ready-made because it was already made, and he simply took it and then put it in a new context. And so there's a lot of, of um, really rich ideas that Duchamp's bringing forward there, but the, the one I want to focus on right now is really just the element of shock, the way that Duchamp scandalized audiences that, you know, for example, um, at the Armory Show in New York City in 1913, when he, um, you know, tried to exhibit a, a, an upside-down urinal as a work of art, you know, the papers were outraged. People were, were scandalized. There were endless caricatures and cartoons, and th this work still has the power to shock us. And so that's going to be one of the major themes of Ai Weiwei's works coming out of the 90s and into the new millennium. One of the first major works of Ai Weiwei's career comes from 1995 and is called Dropping a Han Dynasty Urn. So the work actually is, it, it was a performance that's documented by a series of three photographs. So if you go to our website or in our episode blog, you can see these, um, these three black and white photographs. 
that uh, document uh, three moments in time uh, in which Ai Weiwei drops a Han Dynasty urn. And like a lot of his other works from the 90s, this work uh, exists now as, as photography, but is related also to performance. And so uh, you see a lot of that performance and photography uh, in his earlier works. And now I think he's moved a little bit more into sculpture, um, but we'll talk about that later. So the style of these photos is very much invoking uh, the tradition of documentary photography. So they're black and white. So they remind you of sort of, sort of an early 20th century uh, photographers who went around and, and just documented the world as they saw it. Um, so they're, they're shot in the style of objective documentary photography. Um, they're black and white. The subject is squarely centered uh, within the frame of each image. Um, Ai Weiwei is facing the camera head on. His expression is also very deadpan. His face seems pretty blank or emotionless. But in contrast to how deadpan the photos are and how blank Ai Weiwei is in these photos, the action here is completely shocking and scandalous, right? That's where all of the sort of emotional content of this work is. Uh, we see um, him dropping the urn. And then in the final of the three images, we see the urn smashed to bits on the floor. And he's sort of holding out his hands um, in a gesture that literally uh, documents the fact that he just dropped this urn. He's, he, and he's held his hands in place where they were as he let go. But it also has a little bit of this sort of um, impish, you know, holding his hands out like, like a child. Look what I did. Yeah. Right. Um, so it's pretty obvious what is so shocking about this to me and to others, right? I mean, the fact that it is a Han Dynasty urn, it's a historical urn of important cultural value that he has just smashed into, into bits. And uh, he, he repeats this gesture of a kind of carelessness with the past in uh, his series Colored Vases from 2007 to 10. Uh, where he dips a bunch of um, of these urns in brightly colored paint and in Neolithic vase with Coca-Cola logo from 2010, where he uh, had stenciled on the Coca-Cola logo onto, onto one of these vases. So the most common reading you'll find of these series of works is that, you know, this is pure avant-garde provocation. He's trying to shock us. He's you know, um, destroying the past and suggesting that we need to to let go of the past in order to move into the future, which is actually a very modernist idea. People like the futurists, mm -hmm. right, um, said this kind of thing at the early 20th century that, you know, we should burn down all the museums um, and embrace the future. But I think most of the, the commentators that I've come across miss the point that it's not just this um, the shocking provocation for the sake of shock that there's actually a criticism embedded here and this is raised by somebody in the documentary Ai Weiwei Never Sorry that if you look at what's going on in China right now you see the Chinese government is pursuing economic gains at the expense of preserving the past so China's literally bulldozing the past away to make way for their own future right so um, entire districts are just sort of being torn down while they build these new modernist structures in in their place so what Ai Weiwei is doing is is this gesture of collapsing contemporary Chinese politics onto 
Western art history. And we see him doing this gesture over and over and over again. What he's doing, I think, is, is trying to ask us to respond with that same shock, um, the shock that we are ironically now accustomed to feeling in response to avant-garde works of art, to take that shock and feel that same way, to feel that kind of outrage in response to what's going on in China. I like starting a discussion of Ai Weiwei's work with this in-depth look at dropping a Han Dynasty urn because I think it sets up a lot of the themes that we've seen in his art over the past 20 years. So one of them is the importance of sculpture. When he makes these sculptures, he tends to use materials that are traditionally or quintessentially Chinese. So like a Han Dynasty urn, we'll see him using materials like uh, tea leaves, for example. And yet, as I already mentioned, even though he's using these quintessentially Chinese materials, he's overlaying them with references to Western art history. Other themes that you see in this work that he'll continue with are um, shock, right? He continues to make works that are very unsettling to the viewer, um, that make the viewer sometimes feel very uncomfortable. Um, and finally, this, this use of shock is put to a particular to a particular end, and that is um, some kind of political message, right? That the shock is a means to an end, and the end is to communicate some type of idea about some political situation or reality that he wants to draw our attention towards. The second example of Ai Weiwei's work uh, that I want to talk about that allows us to see how he continues to deal with these ideas uh, is called Sunflower Seeds. And this was an installation he made at the Tate Modern in 2010. So the Tate Modern is a, is a space in London. It's a museum in London uh, that is devoted to modern and contemporary art. And it's in a former uh, industrial space. And there is a large turbine hall uh, at the entrance to the museum. And the Tate Modern has now started um, commissioning artists to come in and do temporary installations in this space. But this is an enormous space. So it's a really special opportunity for, for somebody to come in and do a, a very unusual kind of project. So in this regard, it's actually um, kind of a predecessor of uh, Kara Walker's piece, A Subtlety, that we talked about at the Domino Sugar Factory. Uh, it's not necessarily site-specific in the same way, but it is an installation in the sense that it occupies the whole space um, and is um, not just a discrete sculpture that can be moved around, but that can only sort of exist in that space. Now, ironically, the seeds that make up this work have now been sold as um, independent works of art, I guess, or almost like sort of um, relics of this installation. So there were 100 million seeds um, that were put in the turbine hall. And in 2011, uh, a, a pile of these seeds that weighed about 200 pounds was sold for uh, over half a million dollars, about $559,000. Um, and that may not sound like a ton, but the estimate was that it would go for about $195,000. <laughs> So um, this just goes to show you how his market has continued to sort of explode over the past few years. While the seeds now uh, have been purchased and, and can be probably exhibited in the future uh, in, as sort of independent works of art, really they were intended to be um, spread out over the space of the turbine hall. So it covered a thousand square meters of this hall uh, to a depth of about 10 centimeters. And uh, the, the kicker here, right, is that they're not actually sunflower seeds. Uh, these are 100 million sculptures of sunflower seeds. Porcelain e sculptures. Yeah, each of them made out of uh, porcelain 
and hand painted to look like a sunflower seed. And they're exactly the size of a real sunflower seed. So they were produced um, by about 1,600 artisans working in the historic capital of porcelain manufacturing in China. And um, the original idea was that people who were visiting the Tate Modern would walk out on these seeds and immerse themselves in this environment, this field of seeds. But uh, three days into the show, the Tate Modern realized that the porcelain seeds were giving off a lot of porcelain dust that people were then inhaling. And they became really concerned about the liability issue. So they actually um, banned people from going out into the seeds and you could just look at it from the perimeter on the side. So unwittingly, the work ended up speaking to uh, the the dynamic right now that we, you know, I feel like it's in the news every few months of, of sort of the West being afraid of these tainted products coming from China, these mass manufactured tainted products that pose some type of health risk. Or even just bringing it back to the 2008 Beijing Olympics, where that was such a big concern with people going over was the quality of air um, as they moved throughout China. It was like, you know, this big hoopla and people, millions of people coming from all over the world, but there were a lot of health risks involved with going over there. That's a great point. This work is pretty complicated and, and I want to break it down into three different levels. Uh, first, I want to talk about the way that these seeds were manufactured. So the irony of this is that he's using these artisans who, you know, are uh, inheritors of this legacy of handcrafted porcelain that goes back for millennia. And he's using them to make objects not that are these um, discrete objects of aesthetic contemplation, but that are basically identical to each other, sort of man mass manufactured, even though each one is hand painted and in that sense unique. Um, and also not meant to be viewed um, or inspected or appreciated individually, but rather as part of a larger mass, right? So when you think normally of a, of a porcelain maker, you think of, you know, one beautiful vase that sits on a display case and is appreciated. And this is the opposite of that, right? This is a porcelain maker making one tiny object that is then going to be lost within a field of a hundred million other objects that look just like it. But kind of along those same lines in, in thinking about the connections he makes between traditional Chinese um, objects and the West. I mean, there was there were and still are huge markets for Chinese exports of porcelains. I mean, going back to the 18th century, the 19th century and Europe, these were these exotic wares that people bought, you know, in huge numbers. Um, so they almost did become these sort of mass market um, um, objects for, for Western consumption, you know, 200 years ago. Right. So um, really, in a sense, what, what Ai Weiwei is talking about is industrialization. And this, as Sarah pointed out, is not necessarily something that's new, although we hear a lot now about the modernizing of China's economy. Um, but it has been going on for about 200 years. And so uh, fundamentally, this work, in some sense, is about this tension between um, artisanal modes of production, where it's about craft and, and making things by hand, and mass manufacturing, where the production is more sort of rote and machinic and results in commodities that are not necessarily distinguishable from each other. 
Yeah, um, and and tying it back to the legacy of the avant-garde, um, one thing that we haven't talked about is the the centrality of the idea of de-skilling, um, the de-skilling of the artist for avant-garde practices. So if we think about someone like Marcel Duchamp, uh, we talked about ready-mades. He didn't actually, in many cases, do anything to these work. There was no technical skill involved in picking this work and, you know, picking a ready-made, picking an object and putting it on display. And when we think about the history of art, for many people, the measure of, you know, a masterpiece is that it displays a level of technical skill beyond what anybody had been capable of prior to that. But with the production of, I mean, with Ai Weiwei in general, with his work, and he says this straight out in the documentary, he talks about how he hardly ever makes the things that that are called his works, that he comes up with the idea and has other people manufacture them. And you see the porcelain seed production. I mean, there's a moment in the in the documentary where he's, it seems like he's kind of, you know, taking a shot at painting one of these porcelain seeds. But for the most part, he wasn't involved in the actual production. So what Sarah's talking about, this act of de-skilling, where the concept becomes uh, the important work of art, or the, the work of the artist is actually to come up with the idea, and then the execution of the idea can just be punted to somebody else, and it doesn't really matter who. Um, this is the origins of what we call conceptual art, right? Meaning that the concept is really um, what drives the work and the execution is is not as important or can be, um, you know, done by somebody else or maybe in certain cases, you know, doesn't even have to be done at all. And so what I love about sunflower seeds is that while the concept is certainly there, for example, the concept of uh, this question of the, the tension between uh, artisanal modes of production and and industrial modes of production. Uh, the, this is not just a work of conceptual art. It's incredibly physical. And your response to the work is is one that actually uses all your senses, really. I mean, if we're going to um, talk about how the work was originally meant to be um, experienced, you would have walked out into this field of, again, 100 million seeds made of porcelain you would have felt them crunching under your feet you would have felt the weight of your body shift over all of these tiny little seeds remember it's it's 10 centimeters thick of seeds so you sort of sink into it the weight of your body shifts your your balance shifts um, you would have smelled them you would have inhaled that dust you would have seen them you know filling up your whole field of vision you would have heard them as people crunched over the seeds so it's conceptual, but it's also really experiential. And um, I think that makes it uh, one of his strongest works, right? That, it, that it's conceptual, but also very physical. And then the final, the final level of the work, we've talked about it's, um, it's a mode of production that's so important. We've talked about the experience of the work that's so important, the bodily experience of the work. Um, and then finally, there's the symbolism. I mean, why sunflower seeds? That's a very particular object for this work to invoke. And so um, as one uh, reviewer noted uh, quite helpfully, uh, Chairman Mao was often characterized as the sun and the followers of Mao were characterized as sunflowers. I mean, recall that sunflowers literally move their, their leaves around, move their heads around to follow the sun. This reviewer goes on to note that when um, 
people were no longer allowed to walk over the sunflower seeds because of the dust, the, the idea of dust gets us to the idea of cremation and cremation gets us to the idea that this dream of the cultural revolution of Chairman Mao um, died and that there was a kind of naive optimism that has been lost uh, over the 20th century. The seeds are also symbolic, not just on a, on a sort of nationalist level, but also on a personal level. Apparently, the remote province where Ai Weiwei's father, um, along with the rest of the family, was exiled was a place where sunflower seeds were one of the few uh, luxuries and were shared among the community. And he also apparently has these personal memories of his mother um, you know, chewing these seeds and spitting out the husks. There are probably more ways we could discuss this work, but I think those are three of the most significant. And um, I think that unlike a lot of other works of Ai Weiwei's, um, which can be very political in a, in a kind of heavy-handed way, um, I really like sunflower seeds because all of these ideas are there, but it's all very subtle. He's he's really channeling the ideas through aesthetic experience. So as a result, the the ideas are a little bit more subtle and nuanced and less propagandistic, basically. Less in your face. Yeah. yeah. So as a final example of um, Ai Weiwei's increasingly political work, increasingly explicitly political work, um, I want to talk about snake sealing from 2009. And uh, this is only one of a number of works he's made in response to the Sichuan earthquake of May 2008. And so this was a, a terrible disaster. Um, the official toll of the people who died in the earthquake is uh, about 68,000 people with another 18,000 or so listed as missing or presumed dead. Um, one of the reasons that the, the fatalities of this uh, earthquake were so high is because um, that in this rural area, a lot of people were occupying buildings that were built, um, they were they're sort of compared to tofu, the construction, in, in basically a very shoddy fashion. Um, and unfortunately, because this earthquake happened during the day, a lot of these um, buildings are actually schools and all of the children were at school. And so about 7,000 classrooms collapsed, um, burying these children. Um, originally, the government did not divulge any of their own statistics about how many people had actually died. And so Ai Weiwei decided, you know, he, he really believes in transparency that that's one of the the linchpins of um, a fair and just society. So he decided to to uh, use his blog as a platform uh, for this project um, to basically coordinate uh, about fifty different volunteers and researchers who went around and knocked on doors and uh, collected the names of all of the children who had died, along with their gender and their birth date. Um, and he published the results of that on his blog at the first anniversary of the earthquake. So he wound up with about um, 5,000 names. His blog was uh, immediately shut down. <laughs> so um, the, the list of the names is a political act. The fact that Ai Weiwei undertook the responsibility to make this list happen when the government you know, originally wouldn't. 
um, but also now exists as a kind of work of art in its own right. And so he actually exhibits the list now. So if you if you go to, um, you know, one of these, for example, I went to see the show at the Brooklyn Museum and they had the names printed on paper that was pasted on the wall like a giant mural um, invoking some of the the language-based pieces of conceptual artists from the 1960s and 70s, like Saul LeWitt um, or Lawrence Wiener. I just wanted to say, um, to talk about that as a, as a background for the work that I actually want to talk about, Snake Sealing. Um, so out of this project of trying to document all of the children who died in the, in the earthquake, um, he came up with a number of different sculptures. And so snake sealing is um, sort of like what it sounds like. It's a sculpture of a snake that is attached to the ceiling of a room. And it actually winds through the whole room. You know, these are, whenever it's installed, it's, you know, um, dozens of meters long. And these snakes are actually made of individual backpacks that are tied together. And Ai Weiwei says the inspiration for this was that when he went to Sichuan to, to look at the damage himself, he just saw all of these backpacks strewed among the rubble. When you read about this work online, it talks all about the earthquake, but it doesn't talk at all about, you know, why is it a snake? Why is it on the ceiling, right? I mean, these are formal choices that Ai Weiwei is making. And this is one of the problems of, of political art is that, you know, people are much more equipped or maybe even more interested in talking about the politics than the art. But it's important that the politics are being communicated through these specific choices that that the artist is making about um you know design right about placement and so i want to talk about those um first of all the fact that it hangs on the ceiling i think is really important um why is that important well when you see a giant snake on a ceiling of a room you're immediately placed into a situation of imminent bodily harm I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm from Florida and snakes fall out of trees in Florida. Um, this is something you actually have to worry about. I'm not from Florida, but I'm I feel like I'm equally, if not more terrified of snakes because I don't see them. I didn't grow up seeing them. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also that it's a huge snake, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so in some it's, it's just up in the air and it's this enormous snake. And so that gives you this very visceral experience of danger, which, of course, is supposed to. Um, make you empathize with these students who lost their lives, who were put in in harm's way, not just by the earthquake, by nature, by accident, but by the Chinese government, which built these structures that were not, you know, earthquake proof. The fact that it's a snake, I think, is also very interesting. And I'm sure there's more symbolism about snakes and Chinese culture that I'm not aware of. Um, I know that in, from the perspective of the West, we think of it as you know, it's the snake in the Garden of Eden, it's the original sin, um, it's, so it's identified with, with terror and, and danger and evil um, and the devil. But if you think about the fact that the snake is made up of backpacks, of individual backpacks, I think that that's pretty important. Because the individual backpacks, what do they represent? Well, each backpack obviously would have been worn by one individual student. And so it's a kind of of a, a metonym, right? Each backpack represents one child who died. And the snake is made up of hundreds of these backpacks tied together. And so what Ai Weiwei is trying to do, I think, is on the one hand to give you a sense of the individuality of every child who was lost. 
And yet when you look at these backpacks, you don't really see the backpacks individually. You see the overall structure of the snake. In other words, you can't see the trees for the forest, right? You're more impressed by the overall structure of the snake. And then you appreciate each individual backpack that makes up the snake. Sometimes people can't even tell on first glance that it's just, you know, backpacks tied together. And so what he's suggesting is that while each individual child is important and should be counted, that ultimately these children have been swallowed up, if you will, like a snake swallowing a mouse, that these children have been swallowed up by this disaster. They've lost their individuality and they've become part of this tragedy that is larger than them. And in a sense, that's a double violation. So what Ai Weiwei is trying to do is to, is to maintain, while giving us a sense of the magnitude of the trauma, to maintain the individual identity of each of these children. And so I think that's why it's important that there's the snake ceiling, but then also the list on the walls. So it's important that each child has their own name and their own birth date and their own um, identity, right? Rather than just being part of this this larger um, tragedy. And that kind of ties back into sunflower seeds, that idea of the the individual among the faceless mass. Going off of what Sarah said, actually the same tension between the individual and the collective is in sunflower seeds too. So with the sunflower seeds where you have this mass of uh, or this collective that's made up of individual units that don't stand out but rather subsumed into the greater whole i think he's playing a little bit on uh ideas about individuality in chinese culture or ideas about how the west views individuality and the importance of individualism in in not just chinese but in 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 asian culture more broadly so here you get that same tension right that the individuality of the students is subsumed into their their the larger social group of the victims of this earthquake. Ai Weiwei's activism over the, the tragedy of the earthquake in 2008 led to um, sort of an escalation of tension between him and the Chinese authorities, uh, ultimately leading to his arrest in, in 2011. And if you're interested in Ai Weiwei's um, political activism, I recommend two resources. One is a collection of his blog post that was published by MIT Press in book form. And the other is his Twitter account, which is actually still active. So um, again, these are the things that people, I think, tend to focus on more. They're more accessible. Um, so we wanted today to focus a little bit more on on his actual works of art um, and to get into the forms a little bit. But if you're interested in Ai Weiwei and his political ideas, I would certainly direct you to those two sources. Um, so after he was released in 2011 from prison, uh, the terms of his probation uh, were that he would not talk to the press, he would lay low, and he's also not allowed to leave the country. Uh, he stuck to that for a little bit, but eventually turned sort of um, back to his old habits. And uh, one of the major events in the past few years is that he released a parody of the music video for uh, the popular song Gangnam Style by Psy. And this parody was... Um, to a certain extent about his experience of his arrest and he's since made multiple works of art about um, his his um, period of incarceration uh, this parody video that he made was immediately taken down by the Chinese authorities and as a response a group of artists and museum staffers in the West led by the sculptor Anish Kapoor um, who's based out of London um, and backed by Amnesty International 
this group produced their own parody of Gangnam Style using um, handcuffs and blindfolds as a prop to refer to Ai Weiwei's um, imprisonment and also the kind of gag order that he's under. So, um, the I mo- watched the video for Gangnam Style for the very first time today. <laughs> because of Ai Weiwei. Yes, yeah, so I, I watched the Ai Weiwei video, but I had never heard the song or seen the video before, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the other dimension of Ai Weiwei's work that we didn't really touch on, but he's indebted not only to Duchamp, but also to Duchamp's perhaps greatest student, who's Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. And so um, the role of popular culture is something that, you know, uh, is important in Ai Weiwei's work. I think it's maybe a little important, more important to his activism than his work. I mean, he really embraces new media formats like Twitter as a means of communication. Um, He's, you know, I think... Um, one of the people who really believes in the kind of rhetoric that we had, for example, around the Arab Spring, that new technologies um, will bring about n- new forms of of um, activism. You know, the more information people can get out there, the better. The most recent project that Ai Weiwei has is actually opening this month, September 2014, on Alcatraz. And so just continuing with the idea that he's been working with for the past few years now of his imprisonment. And so... I don't think I'll get a chance to see it, um, but I'm, I'm hoping, I'm expecting that it'll have something to do with um, the history of incarceration at Alcatraz intertwined with his own personal history of incarceration mm-hmm. and these larger um, questions about um, about human rights and, and trying to comment on that through art. So if anybody out there gets a chance to see it, please give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. You can find us at www.arthistory.today you can find us at facebook.com slash art history today and you can find us on twitter at art hist today a-r-t-h-i-s-t-t-o-d-a-y mm-hmm.